This is the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Good afternoon. My name is Callie Buchanan. It's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Plenty to talk about. We're going to get on the feed bag. We'll be talking a lot about feed the next 20 minutes or so. A little bit about what we're feeding cattle and some of the latest developments being celebrated in that space. But also there's a body transformation poll going on right now that is something I can finally, I think, feel comfortable getting behind. You think you like Shark Week? Wait till I tell you about Fat Bear Week. That's still to come on the Queensland Country Hour. It did get me thinking, though. Last week we were talking about the Bird of the Year and our suggestions for Bird of the Year competition. I'm wondering if you have an Australian animal that you think really needs its own national poll, one that's been overlooked. I'd love to hear from you. 0487 We do have Bird of the Year. I'm going to introduce you into you to Fat Bear Week before one o'clock. But I'm wondering what Australian animal you would like to see be celebrated in a national poll and maybe what it could be about. It doesn't necessarily have to be the prettiest or the most popular. What do you think we should be celebrating? 0487 is the number to send me a text message this afternoon. We're going to start with trucks though because the federal government has finally brought Australia into alignment with European truck standards increasing the maximum permissible width of trucks from 2.5 metres to 2.55 metres. Now why does this matter? It's five centimetres but Australia has been one of only six countries that were enforcing a two and a half metre limit which restricted our access to safer and greener trucks. David Smith, the chair of the Australian Trucking Association, says while five centimetres might not sound like a big deal, it's huge for the industry. Very significant. It, it, it's going to do a number of things, actually. It will introduce models, model of trucks into this country that have, have not been economical to bring in, firstly. Secondly, it's going to allow additional safety features that haven't been economical to engineer into a vehicle previously. So therefore, we're going to have a greater choice of vehicles and we're going to have safer vehicles. But probably just as importantly, it's a step in the right direction or the first step into moving into reduced emission vehicles because they invariably are up to 2.55 wide as well. And I'm talking about battery electric prime movers, just for example. So it's going to do quite, it is very significant for the industry, yes. So on the on the safety front, having that extra five centimetres permissible, that means the manufacturers can bolt on things like sensors that might, might sense vehicles in, in truck blind spots and, and by bolting those sensors on with the extra five centimetres, you're not going to go over the Australian width limit? Absolutely. That's, that's exactly where we're going to be, Angus. And just for example, uh, sensors that can detect vehicles alongside of you that you can't, cannot see in your mirrors, 
because um, that's a key point. There is blind spots in mirrors. These sensors that will be able to pick up vehicles alongside the truck and actually alert the driver that there's a vehicle there while travelling on. Those additional safety features that have been difficult to employ in, in under vehicles in Australia or, or uh, to engineer in will now be able to do so. So it's a huge safety benefit here. And David, to this point with an Australian limit of 2.5 metres and a European limit of 2.55 metres, uh, has that meant lots of European trucks come to Australia? Has that meant that we haven't been able to access certain trucks or that manufacturers have said, well, I'm not going to redesign my truck entirely uh, just for, for the Australian market? That is correct. Um, but it prob- Angus, it probably applies to some models rather than the complete manufacturer, if that makes sense. So, you know, if we if we use a given European manufacturer, he'll have certain models uh, at 2.5, uh, but there'll be other models at 2.55 that they just don't bring to Australia that, um, it, because it's illegal to run on the road, that will now be available with that full suite of safety features and, and it's going to give the Australian industry much larger range to be able to purchase from. The, the US, it's different. Again, its width limit is 2.6 metres. Should, was this an opportunity for the, the federal government here to jump from 2.5 to, to 2.6 so that uh, any any vehicles from both Europe and the US would be permissible in Australia? That's absolutely the ideal world. Uh, initially, we did push for 2.6, which would then cover off American and European vehicles. The government's now decided to uh, peg it at 2.55. Um, again, the ideal world would be to go to straight to 2.6, but of course, in Australia, we've got to consider uh, all the state jurisdictions as well as the federal government. So there was certainly a bit of pushback from various governments at 2.6, and we've arrived at 2.55. It's interesting because at 2.5, with Australia now going to 2.55, there's actually only five countries left in the entire world that remain at 2.5 wide. Right, so Australia had been left behind, it sounds like. We, we did we did lag badly. Um, uh, if you like, we were the sixth last country in the world to, uh, to go to 2.55. I guess, in a sense, it was a bit frustrating for industry because... You know, we're pretty serious about looking at our emissions and and battery electric, et cetera, that are produced at 2.55 and not able to bring them into this country. So emissions, safety, you know, all those things make it pretty frustrating from an industry point of view, yes. Now, this width change, that only applies to the truck or the prime mover, not, not to trailers. Do you also need to have an increased width for trailers? Yes, the that's the easy answer yes longer term it's something that we need to probably focus on and to just give you an example of a refrigerated trailer if we were to go to 2.6 we would actually be able to double the amount of insulation in the walls of a refrigerator refrigerated trailer thereby again saving more fuel and keeping product at a much more constant temperature just by way of example so my belief is one of the next steps is we, we need to focus on trailers and secondly, we probably need to focus on 2.6. And David, I suppose there's a bit of an attitude in the broader community out there that 
which is a bit anti-truck or anti-big truck, but bigger trucks we're talking about width in this case, but, but also we're seeing longer trucks, obviously. They're more efficient, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. You know, with efficiency, less fuel, less emissions, and really that's where industry wants to be. We, we don't want to be big emitters. You know, so we really do need to get on this road of reducing our emissions, having safer trucks, and some of the things you mentioned in terms of productivity, um, you know, we, we go longer. The minute we go road train, we take one whole truck off the road, if that makes sense. So uh, productivity is pretty key, obviously, on our agenda. You know, if we can reduce the number of trucks on the road, reduce our emissions, all in the mix of things, that's, where, that's the space we want to be in, yes. David Smith, the chair of the Australian Trucking Association, speaking with Angus Farley. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 13 minutes past 12. Now, it's one thing to have access to these new trucks. It's another for them to take on Australia's conditions. For some key roads connecting the outback, truckies say sections are deteriorating fast. Aaron Luckraft is a self-employed truckie based in South Australia who uses a triple crate setup for runs right up into the Northern Territory. He's worried the roads are causing vehicle damage and becoming unsafe. The last four years they've deteriorated pretty rapidly. So when you're taking your trucks out along those roads, are they able to handle it at the moment or is it st- are you starting to see some damage as a result? There's always wear and tear, it doesn't matter where you go, but our equipment. I'd call it reasonably new. Nothing's over sort of five-year-old. You know, we've got well-built and well-spec trucks and trailers. Yeah, but lately there's taken their toll of the maintenance, just the corrugation, the stone, it's felt and tires a bit. Uh, stones rubbing through tanks, airlines, the uh, gates are snapping off at the world. Um, like I've got my trailers that I tow are under two-year-old and we've got a bit of damage there now. I'm just actually just got back from the shop buying bolts to bolt all the catwalk back on because it's just all snapped the bolts off and I've never had that happen um, with our older set of crates. just takes a toll on everything, drivers included. Yeah, and I imagine um, these are expenses you probably could do without. Uh, everything else seems to be getting more expensive, so this would be eating into the bottom line. Absolutely. Like my truck I've got brand new there. It's only done 45,000 kilometres and, yeah, I'm already seeing like signs of everything. It's just sort of getting belted by stones and whatnot. Like, it's not ideal. No one wants to see their equipment going downhill like that. We yeah. try pretty hard to make, keep our maintenance up. Like, I'm a mechanic by trade there, but at the end of this season, we're going to have to pull everything off the road and go right through it. Probably, oh, I was just trying to think before, could be up to anywhere, sort of $2,000 an axle to go through, and we've got 14 axles on each combination, not including the trucks, and, yeah, sort of knocks the shine out of it a bit. With the cattle that you're you are transporting, I imagine is it adding time to your travel as well? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, they're on the truck for you know quite a lot longer than what they need to be, and just the dust that they're sort of whirling around between them trailers there, it's probably not ideal for them. And just being on the truck, putting up with the corrugation, it's sort of adding extra you know three or four hours to the trip. I think it was six and a half hours to do 270k, which is not really ideal. I wouldn't like to be on the back of it anyway. Truckie Aaron Luckraft, who travels about 200,000 kilometres a year on outback roads, speaking with Selena Green. And a spokesperson for the South Australian government says parts of some of those unsealed roads, like the Data track, have deteriorated due to dry conditions. Grading works are starting this week and continuing through to December. 
The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Now, here at the Country Hour, we're all about putting on good condition. And can I tell you, I've come across today a competition that does that in an extraordinary way. Before one o'clock, you're going to hear about Fat Bear Week and why it was at risk this year. But in the meantime, I'd like to know what Aussie animal you think needs its own national poll or week of celebration. You can send me a text on 0487993222, which Pecky has done. Pecky would like to see the Yakka skink celebrated, social and endemic to Queensland. And Pecky, I don't know if you're sitting next to a mate, but the text that came in after yours says, for a species that should be celebrated, I nominate the Yakka skink, a local species with great character. I've had the pleasure of seeing a couple of pickies of a Yakka skink. They are very, very lovely little lizards. Maybe we should have a Reptile Week, where we get a poll about Australia's favourite reptile. What do you think? 0487 993 We're going to be talking about Fat Bear Week, which is an annual tournament that celebrates bears and their preparation for winter hibernation. Now, the reason we're talking about it is because there was a, a potential that we wouldn't get Fat Bear Week this year. We'll talk about that before one o'clock. But it is an op- opportunity to celebrate the fattest of the fat. And I've got to tell you, I think that's the kind of uh, body competition I can get behind. Uh, more on that on the Country Hour very soon. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you. 0487 Well before the sun starts shining, our local team are starting their day getting ready to help you start yours. We'll make you laugh. We'll make you cry. But mostly, we'll inform you as to what's happening. Local news, national news, weather and what our community is up to. ABC Breakfast, getting you grounded for the day. Weekday mornings on ABC Radio and live on the ABC Listen app. You're probably familiar with efforts to use seaweed supplements to reduce methane emissions from livestock. Various projects are underway across the country at different stages of development. One of them is the work of former fashion designer and entrepreneur Sam Elsom. From his state-of-the-art facility in Tasmania, he and his team are growing asparagopsis and turning it into methane-busting cattle feed. But at the moment, he has 1.5 million doses of seaweed supplement, which will soon expire unless he can get some government and industry support. Morning, guys. Hey, Rodney. How are you? Hey, Mark. How are you, mate? Good to see you. The last five years have been life-changing for me and my family. You know, everything's happened so fast that sometimes I have to pinch myself. Well, lucky, eh? Have this awesome weather. Yeah, that's right. It's been a huge career leap. Now I've had to sort of learn to be comfortable and also overcome that sort of imposter syndrome I think that a lot of people might experience when they're new to a space. Sam stepped away from a very successful career in the fashion world, mixing with some of the most glamorous and beautiful people in the world to take on a huge new challenge. We have this global crisis in climate change and we have to act. So this is the seaweed we grow, the red asparagopsis. Kind of amazing that it has these methane-busting properties. Sam saw that there was the science out there and no one was doing it. He felt so compelled to do something for his children and for his children's children. What if I just sit here and wait for somebody else to do it? 
maybe they won't. We are the next wave, I think, of climate action. So we have an, a sense of urgency. The window is closing. I could never imagine Sam doing some of the things that he's doing. The forums that he has to talk to, the scale and in the sectors that he's talking. What you seem to be saying is that the science is established, this stuff works, but you're currently stuck in this bureaucratic limbo. That's correct. Sam has come a long way very fast, but he still has to shift a lot of mindsets and get people behind him to make this work. The risks that he's taken have been pretty significant, but I heard a lovely quote the other day, it's the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world who do, and I think Sam's one of those people. He's at the bleeding edge of this, there's no doubt about it. You can watch Sam Elsom's Australian Story tonight at 8 o'clock on ABC TV and catch up on ABC iView. It's 21, oh, no, 22 past 12. This is the Queensland Country Hour. 0487 993 2 is the number to send me a text this afternoon. If you'd like to see an Aussie animal get its own national poll or maybe its own week of celebration, what would you like to see? I think Pecky's pretty keen on the yakka skink. He says a threatened reptile week would be great and the yakka would be the star. And, yes, they are travelling together. So the yakka skink's got the uh, the vote stitched up at the moment. I'd like to know what you think, 0487993222. While we're talking about feed and uh, bears doing their best to put on a fair amount of condition heading into hibernation, which we'll talk a little bit about later this hour, they do say that variety is the spice of life. And for a group in far north Queensland, they're looking to provide essentially a salad bar for dairy cows. Terrain NRM is working with an Atherton Tablelands dairy farmer to utilise new technology, the Soil Key Renovator, to improve pasture variety and cover. It's being funded through the Tropical North Queensland Drought Hub. Landcare project leader Sally Fields says it's the first time the pasture improvement system will be tried in Queensland. It's a pasture cropping system that plants seasonal crop and pasture seeds into existing pasture. Uh, So we're super excited to have this um, technology coming to Queensland and also to be able to support the farmer in planning a demonstration site and rolling out an informational video and a demonstration day so we can really fast track this information to our farmers. So can you go into a bit more depth on uh, the actual technology itself and, and how it works and, you know, what benefits come out of it? So basically what it is, it's a minimal, minimum till machine and, and what Niels Olsen's done, who's created it, he's come up with a system that there's rotating blades on the machine that only disturbs the soil 20%. So there's 80% of undisturbed pasture. So that still acts as a cover crop to then this, there's a seeding box above the renovator and there's a really big range of sizes that you can put out through the soil key so with that you can you can have a really diverse seed mix and you can really go from tiny clover seeds um, up to like a faber bean size that can be applied through that seed box as you're actually running over the land with your soil key renovator 
you mentioned this is on a dairy farm. Uh, dairy cows love a bit of constant moisturated uh, pasture. Um, what kind of benefit will this bring, you know, to the farmer in, in productivity and and pasture cover? Do you expect? Yeah, great question. Um, so what what we're seeing with it, with the tropical grasses, we see them start to die off with frost over over winter and as the season. Uh, becomes drier so what this does it gives that ability to come in with um, with winter annuals or perennials and and basically plant a a salad bar so the the in this case the dairy the dairy cows will have that option to be able to come and graze on some on some lush green pasture but then also top up with their with their fiber and through the through the tropical drier grasses that are already established. So we'll, what we're hoping to see is that that pasture renovation will be will be quicker, there'll be less downtime and we'll get some really awesome soil health benefits from using this system. Is that going to be, is this project going to be expanded to um, other types of farms within the tropics? So this particular this particular grant is running until June 2024. So it it was a little limited about what we could pull off in that time, given that we have the wet season coming up and we won't be plant we won't be able to get on ground until April to plant out this demonstration site, and then we'll showcase that and have a field day in June. So yeah, yeah I'd like to see um, some ongoing monitoring going off. We're, we're using ecological verification and looking at the um, landscape functions through this project. And that's a yearly um, yearly monitoring system. So if we can extend that past the life of the grant, that, grant, that will be um, a real benefit to see these ongoing improvements that uh, are said to happen with the soil key renovation system. Does this sort of system, you know, cut back on the need for fertilizers and all those inputs into the ground if you're essentially just putting more seeds into the ground? Yeah, so you, there's a fair few different varieties of seeds. You really want to go for a minimum of four plant families. So we'll be looking at we'll be looking at a cover crop that is um, is well suited to winter, but also ha- has um, also has great impact on on the soil health and biodiversity. So, this particular farm is not able to use synthetic fertilizers, so they always are looking for ways, and and they're super innovative with their approach. So, this machine will, or this technology, takes them another step towards what. Well, that predicts that production system that they're already they're already running, um, and giving them like a more effective tool to to roll out that the soil health outcomes that they want without um, farming in a conventional way. Now, I don't expect that this farmer would have given up all his secrets, but has he let you in on uh, what seeds he's going to be planting, what types of pasture he wants to introduce? Yeah, so uh, this particular farmer has been planting winter cover crops for lots of years now, and he has a really diverse mix of, of species. I know from memory that um, he's a fan of chicory. There's joint vetches, clovers that go in the mix, and, uh, yeah, a, a bunch of other either legumes or annuals and perennials, but we'll fine-tune that mix for, for these demonstrations 
and um, well, this particular demonstration. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely share the recipe of what, what he's got going on with farmers when they come to that day. Sally Field speaking to Bridget Herman, and that project will run until June next year. It's 29 past 12. On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour. Check in with the Weather Bureau on the week ahead very soon. In the meantime, have you got an Aussie animal you think needs its own national poll or maybe a full week to celebrate it? 0487 993 two is the number to send me a text. Make sure you pop your name on there and where you're from. I'd love to say good day. Before we get to the weather, though... India takes a lot of Australia's metallurgical coal, some of which is mined in central Queensland. But in the five to ten years' time, that could become a thing of the past. While the country's steel production is increasing, their aim is to diversify their coal imports and to eventually transition into using green hydrogen for steel production. Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis recently released a report and analyst Simon Nicholas explains more to Megan Hughes. There is going to be some increase in India's metallurgical coal imports because its its steel output, its steel demand is going to grow, grow very significantly over the coming decades. Currently, China is the world's biggest steel producer by far, um, but it, its steel production and demand will go into de- a natural decline as its economy continues to mature. And Australian metallurgical coal exporters are depending on India to push up demand as China's steel production declines. But the accelerating steel technology transition will likely leave them disappointed. So Australia currently sends a lot of coal to India. And from the looks of it, I think about 70% of the coal that India imports is from Australia. How much does that does that represent, I guess, though, of Australia's exports? In if financial year 2022, India sourced um, 70% of its met coal imports from Australia. That's actually dropped quite significantly so far this year, dropped down to 50%. India is quite keen to, very keen, in fact, to diversify its sources of met coal imports. Um, it has no qualms about importing more metallurgical coal from Russia and intends to do so. India has quite a significant energy security problem. It's a major importer of fossil fuels, a big um, oil importer, uh, and it is a concern for the government. It's a concern for any government. Um, But India wants to take steps to um, improve its energy security situation. That involves domestic production of green hydrogen uh, in the future, which will reduce dependence on imports. Uh, It's also trying uh, to produce more of its own metallurgical coal to trim imports. Currently, it doesn't produce much metallurgical coal, but it has its what it calls mission coking coal, which aims to more than double metallurgical coal production uh, by 2030. So I was under the impression that green hydrogen for steel making is still, it's being trialled in a lot of sites, but it's still a while away from being commercially viable. That was the biggest issue with it. It was just so much more expensive than metallurgical coal when it comes to steel making. Is that is that progressing in a way that, you know, metallurgical coal will soon become, um, I guess, redundant when it comes to making steel? I think certainly um, the long-term outlook for metallurgical coal is now starting to change um, because we're seeing uh, the steel technology transition away from coal starting to accelerate. So 
you know, even a couple of years ago, metallurgical coal did not look as challenged by technology as thermal coal does. But that has started to change. We've seen uh, Mark Fisella, for instance, who's the chief executive of Blue Scope Steel here in Australia, he admitted last month that the steel technology transition was moving faster than he predicted just two years ago. Uh, Anglo-American, which mines metallurgical coal in Queensland, stated in April this year that uh, it feels that the steel transition would take 10 to 15 years. That's that's not in the short term, of course, but 10 to 15 years is significantly shorter than what was being predicted only a couple of years ago. Where does Australia stand when it comes to green hydrogen production? There's quite a lot of activity when it comes to projects being planned, green hydrogen projects being planned um, in Australia. Most of those projects are for the export of green hydrogen. Uh, I think there is going to be there's going to have to be some reanalysis of how much sense that makes. I think uh, given the difficulty and the expense of exporting hydrogen, it's going to make a lot more sense for nations to consume any green hydrogen they produce domestically rather than exporting. Uh, It's difficult to see how Australian green hydrogen in the future, exports of green hydrogen will be competitive with green hydrogen produced domestically in India. If green hydrogen becomes the the main thing, I guess, over metallurgical coal, will, would that accelerate and, I guess, increase Australia's capacity to make its own steel? Yeah, so what we're seeing is major international steel makers like Nippon Steel in Japan and, and POSCO in South Korea. Um, they're starting to look at a change in the structure of the steel industry. Because the export of green hydrogen looks expensive, it probably makes more sense to use green hydrogen where it is made. Australia will be a terrific place because of all of its renewable resources, a terrific place to produce cheap green hydrogen in the future. And what could happen, and what I think will happen, is that more Australian iron ore will be processed onshore using domestic green hydrogen. So instead of exporting iron ore and green hydrogen or or exporting iron ore and metallurgical coal, there is an opportunity, I think, to process that iron ore onshore using Australian green hydrogen and just export the iron to steelmakers in places like Japan uh, and, and South Korea for processing into steel. Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis Analyst Simon Nicholas speaking with Megan Hughes. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 25 to 1. And this afternoon, I'd like to hear if you've got an Aussie animal you think needs its own national poll akin to Bird of the Year, or maybe it's an entire week to celebrate, like Shark Week or as you're going to learn before one o'clock, Fat Bear Week, zero four eight seven double nine three triple two. If you've got a suggestion for an Aussie animal to get that kind of attention, now Scott in Glen Morgan wants uh, the lousy jackbird, a very good family example to the larger world, much maligned but a friendly asset in the environment. What but what animal would you like to see celebrated? Zero four eight seven double nine three triple two. Let's take a look now at the week ahead when it comes to the weather for Queensland. Steve Hadley's on duty at the Bureau. Good afternoon, Steve. Hey, good afternoon, Kelly. Now, I've uh, definitely seen a few grey clouds in my part of the world. Have we had much moisture around Queensland over the weekend and, and potentially into this week? 
Oh, yeah. It's been really dry, actually, across a lot of the state, uh, especially the interior mm. uh, and the southeast as well. So, yeah, there hasn't been a lot of rainfall through the weekend. Uh, but there has been a, a few very light falls uh, over the weekend around the tropical east coast, um, just one or two millimetres generally, until this morning, that is. Um, and I'm just looking at the rainfall totals coming in from the Mackay area, um, and we're seeing, you know, sort of uh, around 10 to... Uh, 30 millimetres, even a 40 millimetre fall there at McKillop, so um, just north of Mackay. So it's just starting to uh, pep up that shower activity through the central coast uh, region at the moment. So, um, yeah, we'll keep an eye on that through the afternoon and potentially uh, be updating the forecasts up there. Um, but, yeah, not much rainfall to speak of across the rest of the state. It was pretty hot um, over the interior. Got to 39 degrees yesterday in Birdsville Ooh. and expecting 40 today. So, yeah, quite hot times through uh, the southwest interior. Are we likely to see those showers develop further over the next couple of days? Yeah, look, I think around the east coast, particularly north of Bundaberg, um, you could see some shower activity over the next day or so. Um, I think it, what will happen is uh, it'll spread um, uh, up through... Um, uh, up from the Mackay region uh, into the Cairns um, area, well, between Cairns and Townsville uh, later today and into tonight. So a bit more showery than it has been over the weekend through the north tropical coast, particularly around the Cassowary coast. Uh, maybe even Townsville. Uh, I know they had a very brief light shower overnight, just getting a millimetre or so, but could see another couple of millimetres or two around the Townsville area over the next day or so. And as well as that, down towards uh, Rockhampton, Bundaberg as well, maybe a couple of shower streams coming in through the Capricornia coast and um, into the the, the North Burnett uh, area as well uh, on Tuesday. And then from Wednesday, it extends right into um, the south of the state, so potentially uh, some shower activity beginning to pop up in the southeast coast. As well as that, there's going to be uh, quite a lot going on through the interior of the state mm. this week. Um, we've got a um, expectations of a big low-pressure area moving across the south of the country, and it's going to swing a trough through um, southern parts of Queensland around the middle of this week. So first of all, it's going to get really hot and uh, with northerly winds and, and quite windy. Uh, so temperatures getting into the mid-30s and potentially some uh, extreme fire danger as well through the southwestern interior through Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, so we may have to issue a fire weather warning for um, parts of that uh, country. Um, and then afterwards, after the trough comes through, uh, well, during the trough uh, coming through phase, there'll be a spell where you see um, potentially some cloud cover, some showers and maybe even some thunderstorms as well, uh, but perhaps not a lot of rainfall with those thunderstorms. So, you know, potentially uh, some dry lightning strikes are uh, mm. uh, potentially going to be an issue. Uh, then once that comes through, uh, a cooler west-southwesterly change following in from behind. So it'll get across into the Birdsville area by Wednesday and it'll follow on across through um, the southern end interior uh, during Thursday and eventually hit the southeast coast on uh, sorry on Wednesday through the southern interior uh, and getting through to the southeast coast from around Thursday. I did see that there are quite a few sort of districts that are, are under the the high fire danger ratings today uh, and that could uh, tick up even above high for tomorrow is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. So, yeah, we've got um, uh, quite a number of regions uh, across the Queensland interior uh, on a high fire danger already. Um, most of the East Coast uh, districts are on a moderate today, uh, but uh, those interior districts with the heat, some of them uh, will, will be high with higher fire uh, 
with high but locally extreme uh, fire danger ratings uh, on from tomorrow. Um, looks as though at the current stage uh, we're looking at the Channel Country potentially having an extreme district rating tomorrow uh, and then the Marino and Warrego on uh, Wednesday. Uh, so potentially, you know, um, those areas uh, could be at risk of some extreme fire danger for the next couple of days. And in terms of the coastal forecast, what can we expect there? Um, so um, quite... Um, uh, quite an, uh, well, well how, I'm going to sum. I'm going to try and sum this up. Um, so we've got <laughs> northerly winds in the in the south, sort of south of Gari, uh, across the southeast coast, and they're going to pep up uh, with the approaching trough over the next few days. So, uh, in the southeast, we could see some um, strong wind warnings uh, from as early as Wednesday, uh, with northerlies developing in in the Gold Coast um, waters. Uh, and then that'll swing around to a southerly change later in the week. Uh, across the midsection of the coast, around the, the Whits and Days in the central coast, it's a, a fairly light easterly flow, so it's mostly around uh, east, easterly, around 10 to 15 knots. And then the far north and waters, it's, it's more of a southeasterly airflow, uh, around 15, locally up to 20 knots. Uh, and much the same through the week up in that part of the world. It's really the big changes going on in the wind directions uh, across the south of the state this week. Steve Hadley, thanks for your time on the Queensland Country Hour this afternoon. Yeah, no worries, Kelly, and uh, speak to you soon. Thank you very much. We'll keep across those warnings on the Bureau's website and also make sure you keep across what's happening on the QFES website as well. There's quite a few little advice fires uh, around the place, a few hazard reduction burns worth keeping an eye on, particularly if you're in those districts where things are you know, potentially getting a little bit tetchy tomorrow. Of course, you can always keep up to date with the latest on the ABC's website if you head to abc.net.au slash emergency. ABC Radio, your local source of national and international news, weather and emergency information. We engage with audiences through both analogue and digital radio services. In times of emergency, all the latest news and information can be heard via your local ABC radio station, online at abc.net.au slash radio or via the ABC Listen app or head to abc.net.au slash news for further news and information. ABC Radio, across Australia. You are listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 18 to 1. I'd like to hear from you this afternoon, 0487 993 2 if you've got an Aussie animal that you'd like to see celebrated through a national poll or even a week to celebrate it. Uh, Di from Allura would like to suggest the Dunart. You know what? I don't know very much about them, Di, so it's probably due. If you've got a suggestion, 0487 993 2 we're going to take a look at that bear week before one o'clock for uh, well, there's it was it was at risk and I I'm I'll give you an update before one o'clock. First though, I'd like to know, do you know what a bio crust is? Now it's not that part of a kid's sandwich that's been in the bottom of their school bag for a bit while for a bit of a while and you've just come to pack the bags because school holidays are over and you're questioning the biological growth that's in the bottom of that bag. If you've spent any time in a rangelands environment, you've probably seen a biocrust. It's a unique part of the Earth's skin and many people aren't particularly across why it's important. But it is worth knowing more about it because as University of Queensland researcher Dr Wendy Williams explains, your biocrust could make a big difference to your pasture in a hot, dry summer. Biocrust is something that we've all probably seen but not known what it is. So it's the black cover 
mostly black cover on the surfaces of the ground in arid areas and rangeland areas and it greens up in the wet season but then it turns black because that's its sunscreen so it grows on the ground between grass plants and it's called a biocrust because it's biologically active so they have living organisms in them mostly visible under a microscope but you can just see it as a coating on the ground surface. How much correlation is there between biocrust and pasture growth? So biocrusts are really super important for your pastures. They give them nutrients, they cycle nitrogen and carbon and they give you a nutrient balance in the soil and without them you would not get enough nitrogen over the course of a wet season to give you your pasture protein. So they're incredibly important for that. What does your research on fire and biocrust show? So with fire, we've been doing research over at Kidman Springs at Victoria River um, Research Station in Northern Territory. And there's... Um, a fire project that's been going there for 30 years. We're looking at how the biocrusts recover after fire and what we've found is that the early season fires, dry season fires, that are cooler than others, um, not, not always depending on the season, but that are cooler than others, actually have a better result in terms of carbon and nitrogen uptake. So you get improved results in those areas. So from a management point of view, if you're able to um, burn earlier in the wet season, you would most often get a better result. Are there other ways that people in the north can get the most out of their biocrust? The key to biocrust health is wet season spelling. If you can wet season spell, even for the first half of the wet season, you're going to get a good recovery of biocrusts. If you keep pressuring your pastures wet season after wet season without giving it a break, you will gradually destroy the biocrusts and then your grass cover will start to deteriorate, your protein levels will start to drop. So it's really important to follow the the industry recommendations of wet season spelling and wet season spelling every second year is ideal it doesn't always work but um, you know like we try and advocate for that. I think with biocrusts what you've got to remember is that they are diverse they're your natural capital they are free renewable agents of nitrogen and carbon and that's really important in this environment because we need nitrogen and carbon in order to have plant growth and they balance out the soil nutrient cycle so they're incredibly important for that. They're also the last things that sit on the soil surface in a drought so they hold the soil surface together and keep it secure and stop erosion as well. So from that point of view I think that we all want to actually look after our biocrusts. University of Queensland researcher Dr Wendy Williams speaking to Roseanne Maloney. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour and I'd like to hear from you this afternoon. 0487 993 two. You're going to hear about a quest to find the bear that you believe best exemplifies fatness and how it could have been an unexpected collateral damage to a 
international political issue. Talk about that before one o'clock. Tune your mood with the ABC Listen app. Get swept away in a podcast. Some people come to remembering very funny things from surgery. Really? Choose the news that suits you. Call live radio shows. Carl is calling from the ABC Listen app. Hello, can we make it science week again? And find a playlist that moves you. Anytime, anywhere, every day. Life sounds better with the ABC Listen app. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Now, if you're a woman just getting started in agriculture, it can be a bit of a blokey industry. But a new ladies in livestock group is giving novice farmers a chance to learn some hands-on skills. The course targets women with little to no farming experience and covers everything from marking calves to fixing fences, soil testing and even how to buy and sell at the sale yards. Annie Brown went along for lesson one, which was lamb marking. Just watch so they don't kick you good Put it on first On a farm in Warrambane just outside of Benalla, a group of nine women are marking lambs for the first time. Who wants to do a tag? It's part of a new group in the northeast of Victoria called Ladies in Livestock, and it's run by cattle farmer Jackie Lachlan. Used to be a farm consultant, and I now have stud Murray Gray cattle, which I love. <laughs> and for a long time, 10 years ago, I had this idea of in talking to younger girls they wanted the practical skills if they bought land they could actually feel confident in going and buying sheep handling lambs or calves fixing a fence and it's taken a long time to come to fruition but then I thought well bite the bullet and do it and the idea was for women to come out in an environment that wasn't under pressure um, which sometimes it is with men. They get, they're in a hurry to do things and, and often they lose their cool with their wives and their girlfriends. <laughs> so this was to provide an environment where they could relax and learn. You said this is something that you've wanted to do for a long time. Mm. Where did you first get the idea from this? So what was this inspired from? Just talking at conferences with young girls and older girls. One of the older ladies, she wanted to keep her farm. And because she'd been the housewife, the housekeeper, the children's you know, raiser, she didn't know how the farm worked. And she, her husband died and the children talked her into selling the farm because she didn't know about it. And she said, I wish I'd met you years ago because I would have then learned how to run the farm, I could stay there. And she wanted to stay there, but in the end sold it. So that sort of helped me think along those lines as well. There's women here, that single women and married women. So it covers anyone and everyone. (laughs) How did you get into farming, Jackie? Family dairy farm. When I was young and I loved it, I spent every weekend down on the farm. I worked for years and years and years with other vocations and at 40 I went back to farming and I thought I should have done this when I was 20 (laughs) and I can't get enough of it. 
I guess, what are your hopes for what this group could grow into? Well, I do hope at the end of it they're all confident enough to go and purchase animals and run their property, whether it's 400 acres or four acres, and be confident in doing it and feel that they're doing it the right way. Cheryl and her husband retired to Ruffy to take up farming. They've started with just a small herd of belted Galloway. This is the first time she's ever been near a sheep. My husband is very much a perfectionist and no farming background, so I found I was really relying on his expertise. Although I was doing lots of reading, I wasn't hands-on. And we're in our 60s and I want to be able to really participate equally in the farm. And this was just a beautiful opportunity to learn with other women in a safe environment to get my confidence up and just, just live the life I want to live as an active person on the land as I get older. So you said you're new to farming. What were you doing before? So I was a nurse, midwife before, before this, so um, maternal and child health nurse. No family history of farming whatsoever, but lots of bushwalking and camping and time in the country. Had this very idyllic view of how life would be. Reality is a nice place to visit, but I'm now living in it. So, What's been the highlight of your day? Actually, practically doing this. I've never handled a sheep before, and we've laughed a lot. So, you know, we've all fumbled our way through. As you saw, I couldn't tell a girl from a <laughs> boy, so I've got that covered now. So, no, just really doing it and learning. Yeah, it's been great. Janine Clayton, and we've got 300-odd acres in a place called Moglanimbi, just north of Euroa. We run Black Angus, and I've just started breeding. So this will be our third year breeding. Uh, it's been a new experience because we weren't farmers. So over the last seven years, we've developed lots of new skills. How are you going working with sheep? This is a new experience for you? They're silly animals. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're smaller and easier to handle. They are a little bit erratic, but, um, yeah, different. I didn't really know what to expect. What's it like being in a, a group of just women learning these skills? It's really good. I think uh, women empower women, and it's a softer approach than having men tell you this is how it's done. Not bagging out the men, but I think women tend to talk and gleam off each other uh, better than just having a full-on instruction from a guy who's perhaps been doing it for years. So the one thing in particular you're hoping to learn from this group? I want to become confident in doing things um, to help out on the farm instead of just doing all the book work. I, want, I already work in the yards, but just having that confidence in knowing what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and handling things like, you know, the tag guns and vaccines. What advice would you give other new farmers? Find a group. Find a group of like-minded people. Do any courses that come up that um, appeal to your interests. Thank you for Jackie putting this on and Mark for having us all here, us novices working as sheep. Janine Clayton speaking to Annie Brown. I wonder if there's anything like that happening around your place. If you've got something you'd like to share, 0487 993 2 is the number to send me a text message. All right, it's nearly time for Fat Bear Week. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Now, it involves residents in Alaska picking their favourite fat brown bear. But there was a risk that Fat Bear Week wouldn't go ahead this week 
if the US government had to shut down over a budget dispute. And as the BBC's Madeleine Drury reports, viewers of the animals vote online for those they want to advance to the next round. Think basketball bracket until a champion is crowned in the week-long contest. For every bear that ever there was will gather there for certain because today's the day the teddy Brown bears in Alaska's Katmai National Park have been bulking up on salmon this summer, ready to head into hibernation in the autumn. They're big, as in they could be some of the biggest on Earth. Fat is their fuel and some can weigh in at more than 450 kilos. That's why National Park employees decided to start an annual tournament eight years ago, Fat Bear Week, for the public to vote online for their favourite bear. One million votes were cast last year and the park has even created three viewing decks for spectators. Trouble is, a shutdown could mean that National Park employees would no longer be able to use their National Park's official social media accounts and Alaska's cherished popularity contest could be postponed. Bear down for midterms, one person joked online. This is an embarrassment, another said. The upcoming decision on a government shutdown puts National Park employees in a sticky situation. Or perhaps the world's most famous bear, Winnie the Pooh, might say... Oh, bother. Double bother. The BBC's Madeleine Drury, Drury explaining some of the challenges that Fat Bear Week was facing this year. But the US government has narrowly avoided a shutdown for at least 45 days. An 11th hour passing of a bill aimed to ensure funding would remain for vital services has happened. Let's hope Fat Bear Week is a part of those vital services. Now, you can get on online and meet the bears uh, if you head to explore.org slash Fat Bear Week or just Google Fat Bear Week, it's a very serious competition, I can tell you. It starts, voting starts on the 4th of October, that's Wednesday. It's all in Pacific time. And essentially, there's a bracket where you decide who's the fattest of the fat, who exemplifies fatness. The bear with the most votes advances to the next round before one is crowned champion uh, on the 10th of October. And there are some live events throughout the week on uh, some various YouTube channels that you can keep across. And I can tell you that Fat Bear Jr. has already been run and won. And 806's Spring Cub has taken out that prize. The male first-year cub has a long, shaggy brown fur and a short-pointed muzzle. And he overcame some challenges of fishing near Brooks Falls. But there was abundant salmon salmon this midsummer and he grew rapidly to exemplify fatness and that is fat bear week and I'm going to stay across it all week because it's just bringing me a significant amount of joy and if you'd like to share an animal you think should get this kind of attention from the Queensland Country Hour I'd love to hear from you send me a text 0487993222 is the number I'll be back on deck tomorrow from midday to talk more about it of course there's no markets today because of the public holiday so you get fat bear week instead thanks for your company this afternoon head online for the latest in rural news at abc.net.au slash rural it's one o'clock